If you're listening to a cast of Kings, you probably like reading or listening to books. Well, happy day for you. Today's sponsor is Audible, who has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a 30-day free trial right now at audible.com slash a cast of Kings. That's audible.com slash a cast of Kings. Welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I've not read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Kings, which is where you can comment on every single episode. Uh, so what we do on this podcast is we recap every show uh, from the perspective of a book reader and from a non-book reader. Uh, and we will spoil everything through this week's episode of the show. We will not spoil anything from future episodes, and that includes the next time on preview uh, that HBO shows you. We also not spoil anything uh, from the books that uh, might not have appeared in the show yet. So uh, that's what we do here on the podcast. And if you like what we do here on the podcast, uh, we would ask you to go to iTunes and uh, really appreciate it if you leave us a review right there on the iTunes uh, for uh, A Cast of Kings. Uh, the reviews help people find the show. And uh, if you like the show, you want to recommend it to people, that's one really easy way of uh, supporting us. Just go to iTunes, leaving a review for us uh, for the Cast of Kings podcast page. But uh, speaking of listener contributions, Joanna, we always like to begin every episode with uh, a couple of emails that people send into a cast of kings at gmail.com. And, you know, one of the great things about doing a podcast, Joanna, <laughs> is whenever you make a single mistake, <laughs> any mistake of any kind, uh, you are immediately inundated with uh, emails and tweets and Facebook messages and what have you correcting your grievous errors uh and it's a way to keep people in check and also ensure that you try you know not to make mistakes in the future uh so last week you stumbled into such an error uh what was that joanna and i will say sometimes they're very tiny errors and this is a big error so i will just <laughs> i will totally admit it um i fumbled the whole explanation of the drowned god what is dead may never die thing on the Greyjoy pro- plot line i was rereading brand chapters and i should have been rereading uh, Greyjoy chapter. So this email comes from Jeff Hughes uh, in Texas, and he says, um, "Longtime listener, first time emailer. One thought on the Ironborn's prayer. I'm pretty sure the reasoning for those words in their prayer is because when someone is baptized by a drowned man, the priest in their religion, they take the Southern Baptist version of baptism to the extreme. They submerge you until you're drowned. Then the priest brings you back to life. The very first Red Cross CPR certification, maybe. <laughs> Thus, the saying: What is dead may never die, but rises again." harder and stronger you've already died and have been risen again so you should never fear death go into the battle fearless etc that is completely right i got a million tweets and emails about it and you were all right and i was wrong so thank you 
Uh, well, very cool, Joanna, and this is certainly not the first time one of us is going to have to eat shit on this podcast, and uh, <laughs> it's probably going to be me next, uh, maybe as a result of this episode, who knows? Mm. Uh, but yes, thank you, for, and keep the corrections coming in, uh, we always appreciate them. Let's see, uh, a couple people emailed in about Theon, uh, a lot of doubts about when you know whether Theon was referring to uh, the Iron Islands when he's referring to home or whether he's actually going to make it home. Uh, do you have any opinion on either of those questions? I do. Um, I am 100% certain that Theon is going home to the Iron Islands. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we'll leave it at that. I mean, even the language of the episode seemed to indicate this when he's talking about home and then That's they cut to Pike. Yeah. You know, like that, that is that is visual language way of showing that that is what is being referred to and that's where he said it. So something that I've something that I've discovered this season is that you, you know, we've talked about the difference between going off book on on the show and I, I've been used to crackpot theories that are tied to the books for, you know, years and years and years. But the crackpot theories that are now tied to clues in the show is like a whole new level. <laughs> and it's been really interesting. I'm not even saying that in a bad way because sometimes I'm very sure that it's going to be right. But sometimes I think the show is giving um, – or people are giving the show a little bit too much credit for being too clever by half when I don't think it's quite that tricky. All right. Uh, well, fan theory – about uh, the show that I think is yours and my favorite, Jonah Robinson, is uh, <laughs> I think someone openly speculated whether or not Sansa and Ollie would end up getting together. You know, that was it's certainly someone's favorite on this podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, that it was it was a really solid theory, and I was yeah. I was kind of holding out hope for it until this week. Um, and and I'm not even not holding out hope for it. I just I'm just kind of well, delaying it now. Listen, Dave, what is dead may never die. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ollie wouldn't be the first character to come back on the show. So if you wanna if you wanna hold on to your fan campaign of hashtag Ollie lives, like you can, I, I will support you in that. I will. Uh, I, I, the hashtag campaign is not Ollie lives, John Robinson. It is oh. uh, hashtag uh, Ollie hair watch. I think. Oh, Ollie hair watch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for all your emails to castofkings at gmail.com. We appreciate it. Uh, let's get into the show this week. Uh, this week's episode is uh, Season 6, Episode 3, entitled Oathbreaker. And it starts moments after uh, last week's episode ended, where uh, Davos and Melisandre, they left. They're like, I guess, well, I guess it didn't work. You know, that, that wasn't successful. Uh, Davos, I guess, somehow... Hears the commotion, finds his way back into the room, and I, I really wanted to watch Davos like drop his mutton sandwich or something like that. <laughs> Surprise! I feel like we were slightly robbed of Davos's full like double take, spit take reaction to John. You know, uh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and uh, you know, John comes back to life, and uh, he has this interaction with Davos where. Like, Davos is like, what do you remember? What do you, like, explain what's going on? They kind of catch each other up on things. Melisandre comes in, and she is shocked at what has happened. I don't think even she expected, uh, you know, the result that she ended up getting. Uh, at this point, we should mention that uh, some eagle-eyed fans or eagle-eyed listeners, what have you, uh, went back and listened to Melisandre's uh, talking last week, like uh -huh. the, the, the incantation. Yeah. that she had, uh, and uh, they ha actually translated what she said. Right. Uh, so I am going to read that translation 
in, in a your second. best Melisandre voice, please. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to go okay. that far. Uh, but yeah, someone translated the High Valyrian dialogue, and it goes something like this. We ask the Lord to shine his light and lead a soul out of darkness. We beg the Lord to share his fire and light a candle that has gone out. From darkness, light. From ashes, fire. From death, life. So that's what Melisandre said last week. And it worked. And uh, it was really great to see uh, Melisandre on this week's episode react to John being alive because it almost felt like she's just grasping at straws like anything to justify uh, what she's done wrong. Like, hey, oh, hey, hey, I was wrong before, but you are certainly the chosen one. Uh, I, I really kind of liked seeing that whole uh, interaction play out. Uh, and then, of course, Davos talks to John, and John asks, "Why am I here?" And Davos reacts like uh, me, at least in part, as part of the audience. I don't know, he says. <laughs> you know, and I almost felt like Davos was speaking for me about how poorly this whole John resurrection thing had been set up. But what was your reaction to this whole scene, John Robinson? Um, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought all the players were really strong. Kit Harrington, I thought, really sold the sort of he. Felt he looked like almost like he was having a cardiac, uh, you know, rest as he was trying to get off this lab there. Um, and I, yeah, the Melisandre thing, I think it's very clear that she didn't expect it to work. That she was scraping the bottom of the barrel of her faith, and then John is John is awake, and she's like, oh, and and you want to talk about candles reigniting? Like I felt like the zealotry glow was back in her eyes when she was staring at him. It was. Even when he was like, oh, yeah, I went to the other side and there was literally nothing. She's like, cool, cool. So God is real? God is real is what you're saying. Okay. Great. Yeah, it, it's yeah. like any kind of fundamentalist person who has lost their faith but then just has some kind of miraculous event reignited again. And I liked how that was depicted on, on the And screen. I mean, in terms of grasping at straws, bringing someone back from the dead is not a bad one to grasp at. I mean, she's I agree. I mean, that, proud, yeah, proud of herself. You know? Pretty clear demonstration of... Uh, of her abilities and that, you know, there, she still has some power and that's pretty cool. Uh, what did you think of the whole interaction he had with Davos and like why he's back? You know, last week we talked about how well this whole thing was set up. And I think we both agreed that they didn't do a very good job of setting up. Like, why do they need to keep his body there? Why do they need to keep, you know, him away from the other people? Why don't they just bury him? Like all these questions. Uh, and then Davos just wanting to revive him, seemingly coming out of nowhere. Uh, you know, do you feel like any of those critiques were put to rest this week? What do you remember? They stopped me. Ollie. He put a knife in my heart. I shouldn't be here. The lady brought you back. Afterwards. After they stabbed you, after you died, where did you go? What did you see? Nothing. There was nothing at all. The Lord let you come back for a reason. Stannis was not the prince who was promised, but someone has to be. Um, I think in terms of the body, 
it might be tempting for us to muddle the timeline a little. The more that I think about it, I think John was only dead like 24 hours. It wasn't that long. It was a couple episodes or it was an entire off season, but it wasn't actually really that long. Sure. Um, and I think some readers, some listeners pointed out that as soon as they had John's body in that room, it was sort of like siege tactics where they had to have the body there. And I think we discussed that. So the body not being burned right away, because Tormund and Ed were ready to burn it, like the body not being burned right away. I kind of understand. And I think we'll, the proof will be in the pudding whether or not Davos's interest in John bears out. I think a lot of people agreed with me. <laughs> that sounds so stupid. A lot of people agreed that, uh, you know, John, that Davos really is thirsty for a leader to follow. He's not a zealot, uh, but he is, you know, the ultimate VP. And with Stannis out of the picture, and oh, also a lot of listeners pointed out that the reason Stannis went to the wall in the first place is Davos and Melisandre were concerned about the White Walkers. So they are very minded towards the White Walker threat. And John seemed to be the person at Castle Black taking that the, like, the most seriously. So that, yeah, that motivation I mean, those are, too. So A, those are all kind of plausible explanations for why Davos would want to bring John back. Mm-hmm. Uh, although whether that hope – Ended up bearing out uh, at the end of this episode. I'm not as sure. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but even if that's the case, even like those are all fine motivations. But like none of those were, in my opinion, uh, seeded well enough in the show to justify it. But anyway, uh, I'm sure people just you know like if there's one thing the emails and the iTunes reviews have shown this week is people love listening to my critiques of John coming back. I think it's <laughs> really the number one thing that uh, people want to hear more of. Uh, so let's move on, if, uh, if we're good with that. Uh, the, do you want to talk about the Azor Ahai thing? Yeah, sure. So uh, she asks John, like, what did you see? Uh, he says nothing. Like, there's nothing as though there, there, there's nothing in the afterlife. There is no God. But... Uh, yeah, what is what does Melisandre believe about John? Um, so she used to believe it about Stannis, uh, but now she believes it about uh, John, and uh, he, that he is Azor Ahai reborn. Azor Ahai is the name of a legendary fighter from a thousand no. 8,000 years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, who defeated the Great Other with a legendary sword. And so when John went up against the the White Walkers last season and his sword, which was Valyrian steel, did something magical. A lot of people watching were like, oh my gosh, he has a magic sword. It's not the only magic sword in the kingdom, but he does have an impressive sword. Um, Melisandre believes Stannis is a reincarnation of this hero because that's that's what her religion believes, that the hero will come back. It's like, you know, Jesus Christ reincarnated um, the Messiah return. And so now she's starting to believe that it's John. I will say, and since this is just like speculation – some of the prophecy around him, some people think it's Daenerys instead of John because there's stuff about waking the stone dragons and all this sort of stuff. But I think my interpretation is that it's likely some combination of John and Daenerys will fulfill this pro- prophecy, but that's just speculation. Does that clarify the Azor Ahai yeah. thing? Yeah, totally. I think she called him the prince who was promised in this episode, and I think that's the first time the show has used that book language. But please feel free to correct me uh, if I'm wrong. John, I has, know you will. <laughs> <laughs> John has his meet and greet with uh, Tormund and Ed, and uh, it's all very moving and powerful because these are people who have been through some stuff with Jon Snow. 
and for them to see him alive again after he's presumably dead, and and especially for Ed, who uh, is an incredibly loyal dude uh, and who helped uh, bring John back, like without whose actions John might still be dead. Uh, it, it was uh, pretty pretty powerful stuff. Uh, this this kind of walkthrough that he did. Um, so. Yeah, uh, and I, th- I think they went to great lengths in this episode too. And Weiss and Benioff talked about it in the post episode interview on HBO Go. But um, to talk about how John is not fundamentally supernaturally changed, he's not a White Walker. Uh, he doesn't. My personal theory, my my favorite theory, was that he would have the mind of a wolf. He does not. He is Jon Snow, but he's deeply bummed out by his experience and existential. Nihilistic, kind of emo, John Snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm more emo than before. Now, now uh, John Robinson, I think something you said last week, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were you're talking about how it's getting safe, quote unquote, out there in Game of Thrones, uh, and how if if a character like John is going to come back, it would feel more justified if they were different somehow or if they were changed somehow. I don't feel like we've seen that much episode of that in this episode, other than that he gets kind of fed up with the Night's Watch and is like, I'm, I'm doing me. I'm doing my own thing now at the end of this episode. Uh, I, so do I you, feel like the old John would not have, would f- have found a reason to pardon Ollie. I really do. I think Ollie, once again, I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about this right now or if it's too raw and fresh for you, but um, <laughs> I think that – Ollie, who has been a plot device the entire time he's been on the show, once again is a plot device in that he shows the transition of John. Like, John looks troubled by hanging Ollie, but I really feel like the old John would have found a way to let him off on a, you know, juvenile delinquent loophole or something like that. Um, I don't think we've seen the full depth of John's transformation. I agree with that. But I think him giving up the Night's Watch. Him going ahead and murdering or passing the sentence on Ollie, uh, I think these are all signs that we're dealing with a very different John. All right, but uh, but not but not, but I don't think we've seen the full, you know, extent of it yet. I can agree that we haven't seen the full extent of it yet, uh, and trust that we'll see more later. Uh, I don't know that I find these transformations to be that significant. It just – it feels like the actions of a dude who's been through some horrible stuff, got stabbed by his compatriots and then came back from the dead. It doesn't feel like he's dramatically different than uh, a person who had – any person who had gone through those things. I know and I, I, I kind of agree with you. You know, Weiss and Benioff have said in interviews and Kit Harrington has said in interviews and even Owen Teal who played Alistair Thorne gave an interview where they all said – he has to come back different or else the death doesn't matter. Like they're all on the same page as we are in right. terms of there has to be some sort of stakes, toll, price, consequence to this whole thing. And so that's what makes me believe that we haven't, you know, if this is what they think that price looks like, you know, Jon Snow got a haircut and gave his cloak back, uh, b- broke his vow, quote unquote, killed a kid. Uh, I would like to see more, but uh, my hope is that they're going to give us more. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I agree, and I think just John looking so tortured at the end there when he's about to cut that line, it, it would have been one thing. I, I think I would have agreed with you if he just cold-blooded, didn't even think about it, and boom, like killed those dudes. Right. But he was so tortured. It felt like old John. It didn't feel like he was different at all. Uh, so we'll see how, how the transformation plays out. Uh, I'm willing to to hold on for a little bit. And if there's one thing even this season has shown us, it's that – Sometimes uh, things will come into focus in later episodes that explain things in earlier episodes. 
so let's uh, hold out and wait for that. In the meantime, we have Sam and Gilly on uh, a ship to Old Town. Uh, and this is something that the show, uh, I, I don't feel like it's done that often, but uh, maybe it has, which is uh, sometimes there'll be some characters whose storylines we only revisit once every three to four episodes. Yeah. Uh, and it just felt rarer that he would do that, that he would feel confident enough doing that. I think in in earlier seasons, it would, it would just be like, oh, we got we to gotta, you know, put something in here to remind people about these people. Now it's just like, hey, whenever we can get to it, we'll get to it. Um, so we got Simon Gilly, who we haven't seen since the season finale of last year. Uh, and theoretically, uh, Sam is going to become a maester, correct? Right. So uh, they're on the ship, and uh, then uh, Gilly receives some info that uh, she's not happy with, which is that uh, Sam is, in fact, taking her to Hornhill. These are different places, correct? Right. So Hornhill is his family home. Um, and Old Town is where what's called the Citadel is, and the Citadel is where the Maesters are trained, and the Maesters are all men, so Gilly's not allowed there, and Sam doesn't think he can protect her, which is, I mean, true, but also, what are the Maesters going to do? It's not like the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch is super rapey. The Maesters are like old men or, you know, nerds <laughs> like Sam who just want to get their chains. So, um, though I guess Pycelle is kind of a lascivious, uh, lascivious <laughs> Maester. But anyway, he wants to make sure she's safe. So he's going to take her home uh, to his home, to his father, who we know from context in the show is kind of a terrible person, uh, but that his mom and his sister are really, really nice and they'll take care of Gilly, hopefully. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised he's going back because uh, my understanding is that their parting was not uh, on great terms, him and his father. Uh, So, uh, like, I'm pretty sure his father is who drove him to the Night's Watch, right? Yep, yep. So... Uh, it's gonna like not really clear to me what the, what the motivation there is. I guess you know, like he, in his calculation, he sees uh, his mother and sister as a better uh, way of protecting Gilly than the Citadel is. Right. Um, so, what do you think about this plotline so far? Like, is this something that you were invested in in the book? Is it something that you're invested in, in the show? Like, what do you think? Because it kind of just it you know, episode three comes a little bit out of nowhere, and we only get a glimpse of it. I think, um, you know, Sam's stuff is not always the most scintillating in the books, and that's just true. But, like, I think it is going to be – it's a necessary thing because, in theory, he's going to go discover some – you know, whether or not he becomes a maester because we only have, I don't know, 13 episodes left after this and becoming a maester takes a long time. But he's, in theory, going to find some knowledge in those books that will help John – defeat the white walkers that's that's his plan that's what we expect will happen i mean it could subvert everything and uh, you know um sam dies in old town and never gets back to john but i <laughs> doubt that that's gonna happen i think he's gonna find some white walker info he's the one i think who, who yeah he busted open the thing about dragon glass being able to defeat the white walkers so he's gonna find some info so he has to do this if the show's only checking in with them every few episodes it's fine and i actually really liked this scene i actually think sporadic Sam Gilly is pretty charming. Right. Not they every really epi- su- yeah. Versus every episode Sam and Gilly. Yeah. Right. I thought they were yeah. really sweet in this episode. And um John Bradley's puking act um acting was was on point. So yeah. I also think it was kind of a touching moment when she called him the father of her child. Even yeah. though he's not the biological father. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they're kind of like a family now and that's kinda of cool. 
Yeah. So I, I can't wait to see how George R. R. Martin's going to rip that to shreds. <laughs> uh, so we have another flashback scene where uh, they <laughs> they hired a pretty cool-looking dude to act as young Sean Bean. I thought it was a pretty close visual representation. What did you think? Yeah, I'm <laughs> the wig was great. Um <laughs> I, I do like the notion that that uh, Ned Stark is the kind of guy who would have the same haircut for you know, <laughs> his entire adult life. But uh, <laughs> well, otherwise, how would we get that? It's Ned Stark, Joanna. Come on. But it's funny when they cast when they cast that guy. I think a lot of people thought he was going to be playing Howlin' Reed, Mira's father, because he looks a lot like the actor who played Jojen Reed. Um, and it's true; he just seemed a little like a slight for Ned Stark. Um, <laughs> If that makes sense. He's not as physically imposing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ned had years to, you know, pack on some, I don't know, mutton weight, mead weight. I don't know. But, (laughs) uh, but I loved, I loved this whole sequence. And, um, I am a rare book reader. I think not a lot of book readers loved the sequence or they were split. It's, it's a, it's a controversial sequence is what I'll say, but I love it. So this is a flashback to uh, a famous battle that apparently Ned had, uh, told, ran about many times, uh, but the ending was different than what Ned had said, right? My guess, I mean, Ned doesn't seem like one to talk about and lie about his own exploits, but, um, you know, there was old Nan who was uh, the woman who looked after Bran was the one who told him all these stories. So my guess is that she would be the main source or maybe the like his siblings. But I just can't see Ned being like, well, that one time that I defeated Arthur Dane through totally heroic deeds and not mention Helen Reed. You know, Ned doesn't seem like he would lie about that. Right. But I can see the, the story going around and Bran hearing it that way, you know? So, Joanna, for the benefit of non-book readers, can you explain uh, who these characters were in relation to each other and what point in the story they are interacting? So I think what the previously on made clear and and the context in the show made clear, though it wasn't clear to book readers for a while, um, is that Lyanna Stark, who we met last week in the courtyard, but she would be older now, um, 16, I think, uh, is in that tower. And what the previously on uh, with with um, Littlefinger talking to Sansa, the story is that Rhaegar Targaryen, who is Daenerys's brother, uh, kidnapped Lyanna Stark because he just had to have her, and he stuffed her in this tower called the Tower of Joy, and she was being guarded by these two, well, three in the book, two in the show, very famous warriors, uh, because she was Rhaegar's sort of most precious possession uh so ned arrives with Helen reed and a couple northern men to get his sister back and they are outmatched because um arthur dane who's the guy who was swinging the two swords in the show is the greatest warrior in the land uh so according to the show the only way that ned stark defeated him was Helen reed snuck behind arthur dane and stabbed in the back of the neck and then before we could find out what's in the tower, which not even book readers know exactly what was happening, though they have their theories. Uh, the show yanked us out, and I thought it was kind of brilliant. I mean, it, a lot of people are very frustrated, but I think it's very brilliant. And uh, not just because uh, it's kind of a tricksy thing to do, but because it now highlights the importance of what's in the tower for people who have no context about this flashback. Um, this was in the very first book. So for 20 years <laughs> since the first book's publications, some book readers have been dying to know what's in the tower, you know, and 
they thought they would get it in this episode. They didn't. Uh, but now even show watchers are like, hey, what's in that tower? Can we go back there? I'm curious. Ned Stark seems really agitated. Bran is agitated. I want to go back to the tower. So, you know, I, th- I thought that was interesting. Gotcha. Now, is uh, Dane a uh, Kingsguard by any chance? Yes. You happen to know? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I got an email from uh, longtime listener Pat uh, Sponigal, who uh, is like writes the best emails every week to <laughs> castkings@gmail.com. Pat has a lot of Tower of Joy thoughts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, Pat wrote in the next time he, he wrote in about me talking about Kingsguards last episode. He said the next time you're about to refer to any group of armored men as Kingsguards. I want you to ask yourself these three questions. Number uh, one, are they wearing white cloaks? Number two, are they wearing the same armor that Jamie tends to wear? You know, that goldenish, whitish armor? And number three, if they're wearing helmets, do the helmets have a vague resemblance to the hoplite helmets worn by Spartans in the movie 300? If the answer to these questions is largely no, then don't call them Kingsguards. Uh, the Kingsguard <laughs> is a very specific type of fighter. There's only seven. The show doesn't always get that right. So this this Dane I guy got kind of salty with you. Yeah, <laughs> um, this this Dane guy is a Kingsguard, correct? Yes. yes. Yeah, and uh, there was a pretty cool moment when he picks up that helmet, and yeah. I think he has the Targaryen sigil on his chest, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. That's a little controversial with book readers. It's going to be boring for other people, but uh, <laughs> in the books, the Kingsguard are not generally not supposed to have this, any sigil, right? Because they're they're protecting armor. the king. They're not associated with a house, right? Right. But someone pointed out to me that Jamie's Kingsguard uniform does have like an antler motif that seems to be associated with the House Baratheon. So the show's costumer or armorer or whoever has decided that to put the sigil of the king on the armor would be a cool thing. And I mean, I agree that it does anchor you. If this is, if these are the King's guard and they have Targaryen symbols on their breastplates, then you know that it's the era of the Targaryen reign and that can orient you. Cause one thing I didn't say is that, uh, which you asked, which is that this fight takes place at the end of Robert's rebellion. So when Robert, uh, took on the Mad King. And the reason he started that war is because Lyanna got kidnapped because Lyanna was his, was Robert's fiance. Um, Robert defeated the king, defeated Rhaegar, and then this is this was at the end of the rebellion. Rhaegar's dead, Ares is dead, and Ned has come to get his sister. Right. So, yeah. Uh, well, well, I, we don't know what happens next. I mean, do you or, do you actually not know? Or I mean, I have a theory. You, you have some theories. A ninety-eight percent probably true, but we, you know, those of <laughs> us who believe that theory have been waiting a long time to find, to actually go into the tower. So this was a hilarious joke that the show played on us. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I think I know what theory you're talking about. And we have, I don't, we have been very good about never talking about it on this podcast. And I am looking forward to you finally explaining what the hell all this stuff is. Uh, I assume next week is when it's going to happen. I, yeah, I don't know. I think they might string us along a lot longer. We'll see. Let's talk about a couple other elements of this scene. Uh, choreography, John Robinson, pretty freaking great. I mean, I we have it. seen great fights on uh, Game of Thrones, and we've seen some pretty bad fights. I would say some of that Dorn stuff with the Sand Snakes. I really was... felt like this was a reaction to the Sand Snake fight. <laughs> uh, maybe we're reading too much into it, but yeah, I mean, the, the Sand Snake fight was so bad, and then you have something like this that is very well choreographed, that's plausibly choreographed, where you have this guy with two s- massive swords fighting off a bunch of dudes. You see how powerful and how skilled he is. It is 
Very satisfying. And then, uh, you know, at the end, when he gets stabbed through the throat, it's like, wow, what a subversion of whatever this myth must have been. Was this in book one? It is. It's it's Ned's dream. Ned has a dream about it. It's, you know, it's dec- it's fairly vague, but it's in it's in the first book. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, there you go. Uh, and uh, I will say I was optimistic about the scene when I first saw the casting. The casting call went out. I mean, this is what I do in the offseason, guys. I obsessively read casting calls. So it went out June of last year. And it said, legendary fighter, a man in his 30s or 40s who is a great swordsman and a paragon of knighthood. He carries a hugely famous sword on his back. The show is seeking a very impressive swordsman for the role, the best in Europe, for a week of filming right se- uh, fight scenes for a season six role. His ethnicity, race isn't specified, unlike many other roles. So I was like, okay, they are very serious. And when I saw that, I was like, they are very serious about doing Tower of Joy right. And I think a lot of people, compl- a lot of people were frustrated because Arthur Dane famously has one sword. It's called dawn it's a very famous sword uh so they were frustrated to see him have two swords did not bother me like i know i get called a book purist a lot the the two swords thing didn't bother me because they were never going to explain take the time to explain arthur dane's sword on the show so the fact that he had two swords i thought it looked really incredible yeah i, I mean, I mean the, the objective is not hey does he have this sword that only book readers know about the objective is how can we show this guy being as badass as humanly possible and right. i think they did a great job of doing that yeah uh, so really cool stuff. And then there's this awesome moment at the end where Bran appears to be able to yeah. influence the past. It's crazy. You know, he's calling out to his dad. And, you know, you know, maybe this is why Max von Sydow's character doesn't want him to stay too long. Uh, unclear. It, it's unclear to me what these visions even are. Are they actually of the past or are they like recreations, you know, like source code? You know, like in that Jake Gyllenhaal, like a ho- like a holodeck, or like or like an echo. You know, like are they an echo of the past, or are they actually the past? You know what I'm saying? I think it's actually the past, and I think, you know, what's what the Three Eyed Raven is more clear about in the books is that he has tried to influence the past and has been a- unable to. He has tried to go to the past to reach out to a brother, a lover, all this sort of thing, and been unable to. So my question. Um, is is Bran more powerful than the Three-Eyed Raven? Hmm. Like, does he have powers that even the Three-Eyed Raven doesn't have? And yeah, and does is the Three-Eyed Raven concerned about having Bran in the past because he will um, mess things up, interfere, meddle? I don't know. It's curious. Yeah, uh, I, I think it is kind of cool the way they're using Bran as a way to do flashbacks, though, this season. Uh, oh, okay, is- but like last week you didn't like it, so I'm really excited that I feel like you've... Like Tower of Joy... Changed your mind? I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know that I didn't like it. It's just more like I don't know what the hell. Like, what is the objective of what the Three Eyed Raven is doing? You know. Okay. So it's not that I don't like the flashbacks. It's just like, w- what is the purpose of this? I don't like uh, extended periods of time where it's not clear what the objective of this is. I will say uh, that something that Weiss and Benioff said in that post episode interview was that their favorite part about the flashbacks is that uh, it gives them a chance to subvert or or expose some of these legends of Westeros, you know, for what they really are. So when you see the honorable Ned Stark win a fight uh because Helen Reed stabbed some guy in the back of the throat, like that's um a, a new shading on Ned's uh you know, whole myth. Right, I, and I think it very much fits in with the themes of the show, which is all about subverting, you know, storytelling tropes of heroes, right, and you know, right. and villains, and you know, none of the villains are as evil or as unsympathetic as we'd like them to be. I mean, and I don't, none, I, none of the heroes are as heroic or or as successful as we'd like them to be. You know, and I can't think 
harshly of of Ned at all in this scenario because his sister, who's 16, and, you know, he doesn't know what her status is. She's screaming in this tower, like, and he wants to get to her. Like, if we imagine that it's John trying to get to Sansa or something like that, then we would not think twice about, you know, Ed stabbing some guy in the back of the neck because he just wants to get to his sister. So, oh, I see. I see. So I was like, when you said that, I thought to myself, why would I ever be, you know, why would I have objected at all? And I guess the idea of him getting stabbed in the back of the neck, this Dane guy is, uh, is like dishonorable. dishonorable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, No, that didn't even occur to me at all, but I guess that gives you some insight into how I would fare in a fight. (laughs) Uh, All about stabbing the back of the head. It's just like, you just gotta, dude, this this world is so horrible and brutal and miserable, you just have to win in whatever way possible, I guess is is my take. And this dude can fight him with two swords. You know, he's fighting off six guys. The only way you can win is through neck stabbing, I think, Mm -hmm. um, through the back. A little trickery, yeah. Uh, a lot of cool book stuff uh, in this episode, Joanna. A lot of a lot of payoff for for book readers. And you know, if you are a book reader, uh, there is an awesome service we got to tell you about that caters to your needs, and it's called Audible, which is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. We have some Audible uh, book recommendations for you today. Uh, but uh, before we get to that, just know that Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And if you sign up as an Audible listener, you get uh, book credits each month for a low monthly fee. And you can download it, access it really easily on your iPhone, your Kindle, your iPod. Uh, I have an Alexa, uh, like an Amazon Echo. And uh, it can also uh, read audiobooks, and that's pretty cool. So uh, it's super convenient. There's a ton of selection. And, you know, when uh, I remember when the, the Kindle first came out, Joanna, there was a lot of controversy because uh, you could actually ask the Kindle to read you a book uh, that you had in your selection using, like, the text-to-voice Kindle selection. Uh, and there's a reason that very few people use that is because yeah. that – like hearing a robot read a book to you is a pretty painful experience and I've tried it and it's not very good. Uh, (laughs) And uh, instead like all the audible books are generally performed really, really well uh, by trained voice actors or trained actors or trained readers. And, uh, and I generally have a great experience listening to audible books. Uh, So Joanna, you want to recommend us an audible book for today? Yeah, I guess my um, my recommendation is a little off-brand for Game of Thrones, but there's a connection. Uh, my recommendation is a book called Me Before You by Jojo Moyes, uh, which has been turned into a film that's coming out on June 3rd, starring Amelia Clark of Game of Thrones fame. And I read that book a couple years ago and cried a lot. And if you read the description and you think Nicholas Sparks, I don't blame you, but I promise you – it is it is what Nicholas Sparks should be, which is good melodrama. So if you if you like melodrama, uh, and maybe if you love Game of Thrones, you do. Uh, then me before you read it in time to be a smug book reader at Amelia Clark's new movie. So, there <laughs> yeah. you go. That that one definitely feels like it's going to pay off being a smug book reader for Joanna. Um, <laughs> there are twists, man. There are. <laughs> so the book is Me Before You, and it's available right now on Audible, and uh, it looks like the unabridged version is narrated by a bunch of people. Uh, and so you can get that book for free right now with a 30-day trial membership. All you got to go, all you got to do is go to audible.com slash a cast of kings. That's audible.com slash a cast of kings. 
Uh, sign up for Audible. You can get uh, a free 30-day trial membership, which comes with a, an audiobook, and you can make that book me before you. Uh, so again, audible.com slash Cast Kings. We got a lot of people asking, how can I support the show? You know, I want uh, to support Cast Kings, but I don't necessarily just want to hand over some cash to you guys. That's cool. Just go to audible.com slash Cast Kings and uh, get a book for us, and that would be a huge support for us as well. So we really appreciate that. Uh, appreciate Audible supporting us this season. Let's move on to the rest of the episode. Uh, so we get a little bit more information about Daenerys. She gets to Vyastothrak. She gets to the Dosh Kaleen. And everything seems to be going fine. Uh, like, Does it? <laughs> cool, cool callback to the fact that uh, the, the head Dosh Kaleen woman saw Danny eat a heart in season right. one. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, it kind of reconnects, like, this situation they're in with that season one situation. Um, and then uh, she she's thinking to herself, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to stay with you. Like, please, A, please let me go. But B, if you can't, I guess I'm just sticking with you guys. Nope. Turns out uh, there is a, some kind of Dothraki council called Kalar Vesven uh, that is going to determine her fate. Yeah. Uh, so I think you had mentioned that this is completely a show invention, correct? As far as I can tell, this is co- the Kalar Vesven is completely show invented, or maybe George R. R. Martin has it in his outline in the future. But the point seems to me to be that all of the Dothraki calls are coming to Vice Dothrak. So if Daenerys is going to do some sort of show of power, which she might do, uh, she'll have a huge audience, right? Mm. Um, but otherwise, she's in danger because uh, the widows of the hall, the halls are supposed to go directly to the Dashkaline, and she was like, "Instead, I'm going to liberate Slaver's Bay," mm-hmm. and that was not it took a, a great little move. bit of a detour. Yeah, they did not <laughs> take to that kindly, unfortunately. Right, right. So, yeah. But this, uh, to me, uh, you know, I, I am actually honestly generally pretty positive on this episode i think a lot of people thought it was boring in general i like it had a lot of the stuff that i really like but this the marine stuff and the danny and the dothraki stuff is still not quite working for me this feels like a retread of where we've seen danny before yeah uh, I, I, firstly yeah. let me just say I, I love this episode you know so i don't know I, I don't know how people could find this boring. i thought last episode was way worse than this one yeah. uh, i really enjoyed this episode and yeah. because because last episode was about in my opinion getting these pieces into place in my opinion in a fairly inorganic way and then this episode is kind of the reward for that you know or at least the beginning of the reward for that uh so i yeah i really dug this episode i do agree that this danny plotline is pretty rough though it, it seems like uh season two danny where yep. she's just wandering in the middle of the desert aimlessly waiting for you know some fortuitous turn to save her uh which we didn't even see what happened to the dragons this week come on guys you know what's going on with those dragons. Yeah. So uh, we cut to Marine, uh, Varys in the throne room. Now, uh, this is a situation where I'm really glad they had the previously on Game of Thrones because without that, I'm pretty sure I would have completely forgotten this woman uh, who played a crucial part in uh, the Sons of the Harpies' plans to uh, kill off a bunch of people. It was so interesting to me because I actually watched the episode without the previously on the first time. Uh-huh. And then I watched the previously on. And when, when I saw the scene, I was like, wow, they are really relying on the audience to remember this woman. Like, no context <laughs> is being given. And well, then did I, you, the- I mean, did you remember her the first time you saw? Uh, yeah, her? yeah, I did. But, but you know, <laughs> some people don't You're watch like, I mean, I did like, with my book powers, uh, I knew. But. No, it has nothing to do with the books. Like, some people don't watch the episode 
episodes like three or four times like we do or I do anyway. And if you're just watching one time a week and you haven't seen her since season five, you'd be like, who is this? But I forgot that the previously on is the previously ons are getting like longer and longer. <laughs> and they're getting days. pretty heavy handed, yeah. pretty heavy handed. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's cool that the, the woman was in more than just one scene, though, in, in the past, the sh- in the you know yeah. previous mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Like they actually set that up decently and then are paying it off now. Right. Um, I thought her accent was uh, it was kind of like a it felt like a very uh, high British accent. It, it, it did strike me as a little incongruous with kind of how the rest of the show does accents, but maybe that's just uh, a weird personal reaction. I was just distracted by Conleth Hill like doing his thing for the first time in a long time. Like when's the last time we got to see Varys do a monologue in a throne room? He's so good at them. He's so good. He's I love evil. Varys. Yeah. I mean, evil Varys is the best Varys. And I mean, uh, he's not that evil. Like he's he's. I do believe he's going to put her on a boat to Pentos. But like, um, when he, he, when the scene opens with him reclining and fanning himself, I was like, just <laughs> yes, please, all Varys, all the time. I loved it. It was great. He, yeah. I mean, you're right. Evil is probably not the best word. Devious, you know, like calculating. Yeah, it, it's great. And yeah. uh, and how he uses all this subtext, right? There's, yeah. it's, he's never in the text. It's never like I'm threatening you. It's always like, wouldn't your life be better if you did yeah. this? It's always uh, you know pretty cool like that. So uh, the it, is this a book character by the way, Jonah? Because I, I feel like it might not be. But no, no. Uh, apparently they have asthma in Westeros. That was something new I found out as well. <laughs> uh, it's like your asthmatic son. It just it felt a bit an- uh, anachronistic, to be honest. Well, he did he did say like breathing problem, yes. right? He didn't call it asthma, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about your son? Is your is your uh, son with breathing problems going to be okay? Uh, so presumably uh, she then spills you know all the details of who's funding uh the sons of the harpy which we find out are basically the people that danny's pissed off in the past yeah that was a that's an interesting reveal because I, I i had sort of been caught up in you know you want to talk about crackpot theories like i had been caught up in all these theories about who might be behind the sons of the harpy is it varus is it dario like people had all these all these uh guesses and it's like oh it's the slave lords she pissed off well that makes sense okay <laughs> Like no no vast conspiracy here, unless that shoe is yet to drop. But uh, oh, it's just yeah, the the slave. Okay. okay, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, it was exactly who we thought it'd be. Oh, uh, okay, uh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There is this very fun scene with Tyrion and Grey Worm and Missende just chatting in this elegant room. Uh, I didn't, I didn't it, like that scene. I I don't know. It's yeah. I I, I was very amused by it. it. Exists for no other reason than to provide kind of comedy relief in my opinion and also to maybe better establish the relationship between the characters but uh i uh, yeah i really enjoyed it as well i found it very funny oh no sorry you didn't hear me i didn't really like it for oh, some reason i okay. i just yeah i i don't know what it, it was a flat it was a callback right to um Tyrion meeting Braun and shay and playing a drinking game with them and, right, all and of how, that. how poorly it, like the the Con- contrast and how poorly it goes this uh, yeah time, and right? gray and Missandei are basically the most boring straight edge couple who like <laughs> won't play drinking games but and talk about patrol on their off time so i got what they were going for i was just like as relieved as Tyrion when Varys walked in the room i was like this is this is not working for me but um yeah i, I don't know i just don't think that they've given peter dinklage material that matches his ability this season yeah yet. So, so far so far yeah, yeah. uh we have a scene with Master Kyburn this episode uh, where he is hanging out with a bunch of kids acting sketchy as hell. 
but we find out that there's a reason for this, and uh, I, I guess the explanation is that throughout the entire show, Varys has been referring to how he has birds telling him things, uh, and I think the reveal in this episode is that uh, they are kids, or at least some of them are kids. Right. right. Obviously not all of them because uh, there's that scene where Littlefinger walked through the courtyard and he's pointing out who like different people are and they're not kids there. But some of them are kids. And so uh, Kyburn is recruiting them with sweets. That's apparently all it takes kids to uh, deliver reliable information. Wasn't is, he also like f- fixing their mom's jaws and stuff like that? Like he's – And also dis- disappearing their abusive dads I think is what right, I Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, and it it I think my understanding was that kind of Varys has gone away, and like those and like Kyburn has just kind of inherited his birds. Was that? Uh, yeah, that he that he has picked up the spy network, and uh, basically these are like the Baker Street Irregulars from Sherlock Holmes, right? They can they can blend. No one is going to pay attention to street <laughs> kids. I think some people were curious how the Mountain like found that flash the guy who's claiming to be the flasher last week's episode like is he just trolling around king's landing but if a little bird's like hey this guy's down at the you know in the streets talking about how he got one up on queen cersei and the mountain's like cool gonna go smash his head in like a melon you know yes. like that when you say some people you're referring to me joanna i think no no you weren't the only one you weren't the only one at all no uh that but yeah yeah. Uh, so yeah, they, they do explain this episode that hey, it, theoretically it's those kids that that fed them out in the information. So yeah, uh, I thought Jamie's like double take. Uh, he was like, he's like, can he even understand what we're saying? You know, to to the extent that he ever understood complete senses. And then the mountain just turns his head, and Jamie does like a jump back moment, which is pretty great, I thought. And um, it was great. Why would Jamie disrespect that guy, dude? You do not disrespect <laughs> the mountain. That's that's the old like arrogant Jamie coming through. He he can quip, and then he's like, oh oh no, never mind. Um, and I like that they're just calling him Gregor. Cl- Clegane now. I think they were sort of going with that pseudonym of Sir Robert Strong before, but now they're just calling him Gregor Clegane. So it's it's uh, pretty clear what Kyburn's been doing in his laboratory. Gross now, things. Is he uh, being portrayed by the same guy this season, do you know, or is that just some kind of is it a stand-in? No, it's the same guy. I've seen him with like just the eye hole makeup on. <laughs> you know, whenever you see someone playing a superhero with a mask off yeah, and they have like, eye makeup goop yeah. around their eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same guy. That's cool. That that guy has kind of take. He's become kind of an internet celebrity in its own right because he's kind of one of the strongest people in the world, right? Well, he was. I mean, I think he was before, but yeah, now he does like water commercials, right? I, yeah. I he's got a. The yeah. guy, by the way, and I'm butchering this, is half poor Julius Bjornsson, I think. Half Thor. How old do you think that guy is, John Robinson? Guess. Oh no, he's young. Is he like 28? Yeah, like he's that? like 27. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is ridiculous. He is significantly younger than me. Yeah. And he's probably three times my weight and uh-huh. uh, muscle mass. Um, uh-huh. So anyway, uh, speaking of people whose names are difficult to pronounce sometimes. Oh, no. We've got to thank all the people that donated to the Kickstarter uh, to make a cast of Kings possible. Uh, and every year we, we put out the hat and uh, people who support us via Kickstarter and we really appreciate it. And we promise to thank you by name, but we don't promise to pronounce your names correctly, uh, but we'll try our best. So, John Robinson, who are we thanking this week on the show? I'm going to start with um, Eliud Kentu, uh, Jim Nardakia, RJ Bubel, Brian Clement, Ben from Ireland, uh, Mark 
Afalit, Af, no, Alafita. There you go. And sometimes when I look at the pronunciation guide, it's more confusing. Yeah, it it, it actually makes it worse sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Deb Armstrong, Tom Williams, Michael Chasen, uh, Tapio Leopold, um, Chloe Dyrick. Pretty good. Emily B, Lee Cooper, Chad Warner, Mason Williamson, Matt, um, Alex Tobaldo, Jacob Heifel, uh, Martin John, um, Alistair Lee, Martin Davis, Melissa Ilkinhans, uh, Connell Logan, and Suzanne Louise Dixon. All right. Uh, I'd like to thank Carter Rogers, John McKinney, Alex and Julie Mowbray, Brandon Brobst, Tiffany Lynn Morris, uh, Danielle de Leon Thumer, or Thurmer, Tom Zavoral, Bill Gelfeld, June St. James, Pete Zroika, Zeroka, uh, Ross Trigonin, Hugh Fotheringham from Melbourne, Australia, Brian Che, Brandon Broadstone, Patrick Sponigal, Vince Papapau, uh, Bob Phelan, Casey Carmody, uh, Damien Schmuder, Dennis Kinzel, Kinzel, uh, 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 Ted Abernathy, Jennifer Anderson, Jeff Burnett, Jasper Hayward, Rowan from Brisbane, Australia, Jennifer Ingray and Rowan Co., Brand Smith, Jonathan Serdo, Alex Payton, Disney Demore, Simon Williams in San Diego, Patrick Pasta, Drew Clark, Karen Stanky from Coburg, Melbourne, Australia, Reed Payton, Summer Stoneheart McCusker, Florian mm-hmm. Homan, Mark Cole, and Simon Jones. Uh, I, sorry, John, I, I think I put a few more names on my list than yours this week, but we really appreciate all the people uh, who contributed to our Kickstarter. And, John, I think we did pretty good on the Kickstarter names this week. I would give us a B minus, is what I would say. What do you think? Uh, I think you deserved a B and I deserved a C plus. So, yes, average, <laughs> average B minus. <laughs> all right. Uh, really appreciate it. And sorry for, for butching your names as usual. If anyone is actually really upset with the name, uh, feel free to write us. But, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for all the Kickstarter backers. Uh, we are so grateful to you. Anyway, let's move on. Small council meeting. Uh, who is at the small council meeting? Kevin Lannister, Maester Pycelle, Lady Olena from House Terrell, yes. uh, and... Mace Terrell as well, right? Yes. And uh, Maester Pycelle is, you know, you know, getting into all kinds of hijinks by shooting his mouth off as usual, mm-hmm. uh, talking about why they shouldn't have revived the mountain without authorization or uh, all this stuff when uh, Jamie and Cersei crash with the mountain. And, uh, yeah, what what happens in this scene, Jonah Robinson? Uh, Olena gets in some really sick uh, incest burns. On uh, Cersei, which is great. <laughs> yeah. And either I, – I couldn't tell, uh, but if you watch the closed captioning, it's either Maester Pricell or Mace Tyrell uh, lets out like a little f- <laughs> a little fear fart when um, the mountain walks in. Sorry, fart do- jokes don't usually get me, but this like really did. It's the closed captioning just like brackets fart. Um. <laughs> I did not see that. I did not see that. <laughs> Um, okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I really like Jamie. I I can't remember the last time, or if ever, we've seen Jamie and Cersei work together this way. I feel like they've usually been separated, um, but you know, at least since season one, I think we haven't seen them sort of trying to work their Lannister game as as a united front. And I really liked it, even if they weren't entirely successful in this meeting, because Kevin's like, uh, fine, meeting disbanded. You can sit here. That's fine. But um, 
You know, Jamie's right. Pycelle sitting there bitching about the mountain and Kyburn when like <laughs> the, the women of Dorne have run amok. Um, maybe we should do something about you know the 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 place that killed Marcella. Like maybe we should take some action. So we talked about how implausible uh, Ilaria San taking over uh, Dorne was last week. And it sounded even more implausible somehow when Jamie Lannister explained it this week. Uh, it just, it's kind of ridiculous. And I, I think you're right that we will return. You said last week we're probably going to return to Dorne. Uh, and this episode seems to be setting that up. So Yeah, but hopefully less, even less frequently than we return to Sam and Gilly is my hope. My, like, gu- I don't think my we're guess is we're going to see a scene, like a scene with like them killing Ilaria. That's my guess is how that'll play out. But mm-hmm. what do you think? Um... The thing about Dorne, I will say, is that it is very conveniently placed. Like, it's not just a matter of, like, bumping off Alaria because it's just this really important location. It's the bottom left corner or bottom right corner, depending on how you're looking at Westeros. I should probably use east or west. It's the bottom west cor- east corner of, of Westeros. So, you know, it's like the, it's the, boot, it's the boot of Westeros. Look at a map. Anyway, my point being, it's it's a strategic location. So, you know, they're going to have to do more than just, like, murder Ilaria and forget about it, you know? And uh, uh, Cersei said to Kyburn, you know, send your little birds all throughout the kingdom. Um, I want to hear everything. So I, I don't know if we're going to see some sort of attempt at a Lannister expansion this season, mm. you know? We shall see. I, I had a moment in this scene where they said, you know, we're going to get out of here unless you want to kill us all with that thing. And I thought it was distinctly possible she might have, or at least killed one of them. Uh, so that didn't happen. <laughs> very, very disappointing. But it was great to see Elena again, right? I yeah. Mean, always, a, always a treasure. She's awesome. Uh, I, I'm surprised but- she's not more pissed than she was in this episode because, like, Marjorie has been taken and uh, by the High Sparrow. And uh, I don't know. I just felt like Elena... I want her to go full badass and just, you know, tear the place up, you know? She's a schemer. She's a yeah. planner, right? She plays a um, long game. She's not as imp- as impulsive as I am. So. She, or Cersei. She's smarter playing the long game than Cersei. Um, but yeah, that that was good that they brought up Marjorie and uh, what they're going to do about the sparrows, man. How do you think the mother above first came to us? How did men and women first come to feel the mother's presence? It was through their own mothers. There's a great deal of falsehood in Cersei, you know that. But when she speaks of you, the mother's love outshines it all. Her love for you is more real than anything else in this world. Because it doesn't come from this world. But you know that. You felt it. You've seen her when she talks to you. Yes. It's a great gift. One I never had. Envy. One more thing for me to atone for. Your grace, may I? Do you mind? It's it's my niece. Of course. (laughs) When your mother made her walk of atonement, she did it to get back to you. I still don't understand why you want to put her through any more than she's already endured. It's not what I want. It's what the gods want. They make their will known to us, and it's up to us to either accept or reject it. Tommen visits the High Sparrow this week. He wants 
uh, Cersei to be able to go visit Marcella in the Sept. And the High Sparrow is not super cool with that. Um, and they have this extended sequence on this bench where uh, the High Sparrow basically says, hey, you know, the love... It, it, it's... I, I really love the religious language they use uh, with the High Sparrow. It's honestly very similar in a lot of ways to, you know, old school fundamentalist Christianity in a lot of ways. And uh, the, the, this concept that the people who are on earth are, you know, our relatives uh, or, or our spouses are the way, like, are like earthly representations of God's love for us, uh, I thought was beautifully rendered uh, in this conversation with the High Sparrow and Tommen. Uh, but yeah, what did you make of this scene? Yeah, well, you know, last, I think it was last week, right? I was sort of knocking on the kid who plays Tommen's acting skills and how he seems kind of outmatched in scenes. But that worked. Some people thought I was being too hard on him, but I stand by it. But I think that worked so well in the scene when the High Sparrow, it feels like he's just very much manipulating Tommen, right? He's playing the kindly old man. He's pulling He's pulling a classic Pacell move to be like, oh, my knees, my poor knees. Can Do you mind if we sit down? I'm just an old man with, with bad knees. Um and and yeah, and sort of using Cersei's words and weaving this sort of convincing argument to Tom and that the High Sparrow is on the side of right and he's flattering Cersei despite the fact of like all the terrible things he did to her. And I, I thought it was a, a really, really good scene. Jonathan Price is always it's fantastic. So all right, we have three more sequences to get through in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, so we're going to blow right through them. Arya has a really extended uh, training montage, which I loved. I thought it was great. I know you're predisposed to not like Arya's storyline this season, but uh, I really enjoyed this. She gets her sight back. Uh, she drinks this cu- – there's some question about, like, what is this potion she's mixing and, you know, what is this stuff that she's drinking, which I think last season we saw kill someone. Uh, do you have any answers to those questions by any chance? Oh yeah, he has her drink out of the, out of a fountain where yeah we saw that that liquid kill someone and basically it's a it's a leap of faith right right uh, if you're no one you have nothing to fear go ahead drink this she drinks it she gets her sight back I am not a fan of Arya this stuff this season but I'm delighted to see progress as <laughs> I said last season like she has her sight back a lot of people really loved this this sequence I. Don't quite get what they saw. To me, it felt like kind of a plot recap to remind us of things like, hey, remember Rickon? Hey, remember your list? Hey, remember a couple things? Like, let's refresh. Remember that John's your half-brother? Like, remember all this stuff. That's what it felt like to me. It didn't feel quite um, organic. But I am – and the waif thing I don't get because – First, a lot of people thought her animosity was part of the training, but she just really seems to hate Arya, and I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I'm I'll, glad I'll, to I'll see say her. A few, I'll say a few things in defense of this scene. Sure. For, for yeah, some, yeah. Technically, I thought it was excellent. Just the yes. way it was yeah. edited, the way it was lit and shot, and um, I, I did laugh a lot to myself because I remember in last week's podcast you saying – we're not gonna get. We're not gonna get uh, to see Arya getting beat the crap out of at least not outdoors anymore. <laughs> and uh, we got our wish in that we saw Arya like beat to shit this episode, uh, but indoors, inside, yeah. uh, and it's very cool. And you know, the fact that we've seen her getting smacked, uh, you know, across the head so many times is when she finally is able to defend herself and block uh, the wave's staff. Uh, I thought it was really like a, a triumphant moment that she had finally achieved a level of mastery where she could predict the wave's moves. Uh, I, I I felt that, Lee. I, I really liked that scene. 
Uh, and, you know, this whole thing parallels kind of uh, Jesus' temptations in the desert I talked about last week. And uh, I liked that uh, you, you really feel her progress towards becoming no one. I mean, it's not an easy path. It's an incredibly frustrating path. It's an incredibly opaque path. But uh, it feels like she's finally starting to walk on it or at least has reached some, some checkpoint on it. And all that stuff I thought was done really well. So I am a defender of this Arya storyline, so far at least. We'll see where it leads. And then we have this scene in Winterfell where <laughs> what? What was that reaction, Joanna? I'm just really <laughs> there was a really upsetting death in this episode. <laughs> and it's not Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with you. I okay. disagree. Okay. Um, back at Winterfell, uh, Ramsay is trying to figure out what to do when he gets a visit from who is this? We this is from uh, House Umber, is it? Yeah, small John Umber. Who in the books died at the Red Wedding, but here is uh, alive and ready to mess some stuff up. Yeah, and had previously had pledged to House Stark. Uh, we also get some establishment of geography here that uh, House Umber is the farthest north, so that they will need the most help when the wildlings come in, because uh, the wildlings have come south of the wall. He wants more troops. He wants resources from Ramsay, and Ramsay's like, why should I listen to you? Uh, unless you pledge fealty to me, you know, kiss the ring, kneel down, and House Umber says, I'm not doing that, uh, but I do have a gift for you. Yeah. And he brings in two people with bags on their heads, and they are revealed to be Asha and Rickon Stark. Yes. And I would have never guessed that a reveal of Rickon Stark would cause <laughs> me to gasp, but it did in this episode. Uh, so the idea that he has a Stark that he can offer up is a huge power play. And then he says, well, how do I know that's Rick and Stark? That could just be some guy. And he brings in Rickon's direwolf uh, on a kind of, you know, impaled and dead. Uh, the, the, the direwolf's head, I should say. And as upsetting as it was to see a dog's head uh, on this, like, little blade thing, uh, it, it was kind of cool that the, the direwolves had become so ingrained in kind of the mythos of the Starks that... Like, that's all the proof that Ramsey needed to see. You know, he just, oh, you, you have the Darwell? Okay, well, I guess that's definitely Rickon. You know what I mean? Like, there's no question from that point on. But uh, this scene was very upsetting to you, right, Jonna? I mean, Shaggy Dog. <laughs> so <laughs> upsetting. Yeah. Um, I'm really tired of those Darwells getting killed, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> it is not. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Art Parkinson looks a lot older, that's for sure. It's fun. It was nice to see Natalie Tanya, who plays Osha again. Uh, terrifying to see another Stark in the hands of Ramsay. Um, it was pretty hilarious that even in this episode, Rickon didn't get any lines. <laughs> Just, <laughs> he keeps getting the shaft from a story perspective. But, Jonah, wh- where did we last leave Rickon and Osha? It was a few seasons ago, right? And they had split off from Bran and Jojen, correct? Right. They, had, uh, they were making their way to House Umber. Uh, because Osha did not want to go north of the wall ever again. And she's like, I can't help you. I'm not going to go north of the wall. And so Bran's like, okay, take Rick into a safe place. Mm. House Umbar should have been a safe place because they are very loyal to the Starks. And uh, book readers are having a really hard time believing that House Umbar would ever ally with the Boltons. So I think they made a really fairly decent case in that scene. I thought that actor was great playing Small John. Yeah, he did a great job. Um, but uh, some book readers are so convinced that this can't be something that House Umber would do, that there's this ma- now massive crackpot brand Shaggy Dog conspiracy because they're like, that head was not big enough to be Shaggy Dog. It's a fake dog. This is all a double cross. I don't believe it, but I understand the impulse uh, to not want to think Shaggy Dog is dead. 
So, uh, yeah, you go, Shaggy Dog Truthers. You keep you keep that flame lit. But uh, I think Rickon and Asha are in trouble. So, final scene in this episode: Castle Black. Uh, Jon Snow knows he cannot leave the treachery unanswered. Uh, so he goes, and uh, there's four dudes that he, that are going to hang there, right? Uh, and I like how each one gets a little moment, and then he has a moment with Ollie, and Ollie doesn't even say anything to him. There's just so much anger and hatred there. Ollie's not even going to give him the dignity of having some last words for Jon Snow. The face that kid made as he went out of this world was was really sour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I felt like there was more than four dudes who were in on that traitor stabbing, though. That was the only yeah. I don't know how me. they decided who the four ringleaders were, but yeah. um, I guess Ollie. I mean, Ollie did a lot of work to make sure that thing happened. Um, something I was going to say. Oh, someone had the theory that uh, Brennock O'Connor's uh, voice has changed, and that's why Ollie only had like one line this season. Mostly, he just stood there silently and glowered. Um, I don't know if that's true. That, that might be. That doesn't that make might, any sense to me. Like it pe- might be true of Rickon as well. I don't know that right. they're like their voices are cracking, and so just keep them strong, the strong, silent types. Oh, right? I see. I see that that their voices are like not screen ready. You're saying right? Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. I don't know if that's true, but anyway, yes. Uh, Ollie went out silent and deadly, <laughs> like <laughs> Mace Terrell's fart, and uh, bye. Uh, and, and then John kind of says, like, peace out. He he surrenders the yeah. uh, commander post to Ed, his buddy. Yeah. And he's just like, peace out. And I kind of w- like, how, how do you feel that was set up? Like, uh, I thought it was okay. You know, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as, you know, John's revival last week or his Lazarus thing last week. Um, I, I did feel like, hey, it would have been nice to get a little bit more in- information about what John is doing. I think we'll obviously get that next week or in future episodes. But it would have been nice to, for, for to understand, like, hey, I've had enough of this thing. You know, uh, the Night's Watch vows only last through life, and I died already. Like, it would have been nice to have some explanation of what exactly is going through his mind. Then it's, I think, as it is, it's supposed to be a surprise that he does it, and I don't, I just don't think that's as effective as actually explaining it. But what do you think? Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I think you're right that we're going to get more information next week. I think a lot of people think that John stormed out of Castle Black, and <laughs> I actually think he just I think he just stormed off to his room. He's like, like uh, <laughs> I think he <laughs> like pulled he's the not, car. I don't think he's leaving the castle necessarily. He might be because uh, Sansa is due to arrive any moment, and if any, if Game of Thrones likes anything, it's near misses with the Stark children. So it might be that John walked off into the wilderness without his warm cloak, but I doubt it. And I think he just went up to his room to kick rocks or something like hmm. that. Oh yeah, um, my interpretation was that he was pro- probably leaving Castle Black. Actually, I think he was pulling a Cartman. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Meaning. He's going to walk without a coat to Winterfell? Well, dude, you know, (laughs) dude is... Just by enemies? I mean, dude is basically a zombie, Joanna. Okay, so I'm pretty sure he can take a little cold. That's my interpretation. (laughs) Um, No, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. He might have gone to where the wildlings are hanging out on the gift. Uh, You know, people pointing out that he went down the tunnel, which is like to north of the wall, though, isn't it? So That wasn't the the tunnel, though, I don't think. I, I don't know. I just I think I think there's room for ambiguity as to where Jon Snow went. Did he leave <laughs> Castle sure. Black entirely? Did he go to his room? I think there's I think we shouldn't be surprised by other result next week. Agreed completely. And this is by the way, this is so fun, you not actually knowing where he went. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the first season that this is actually happening. 
Okay, I before we wrap up this episode, got to talk about some Reddit drama, John Robinson, because this Reddit drama is amazing. Okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as, as a lot of people know, there are two competing subreddits. Uh, there is Ollie Rules at ollierules.reddit.com, and there is Fuck Ollie at fuckollie.reddit.com. Now, uh, a lot of uh, people uh, are <laughs> more in support of Fuck Ollie than Ollie Rules. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the numbers are slightly uh, more, you know, uh, uh, high. Like, it's higher subscribed, the Fuck Ollie subreddit. Uh, but, you know, a lot of Ollie supporters took to the Ollie Rules subreddit to post their uh, the condolences. We kind of grieved. We held each other metaphorically online last night after mm-hmm. the Ollie slaying. Was it, was it healing? It was incredibly healing, yeah. Uh, and I think you know how some, when sometimes people die and then their like, Facebook page becomes a memorial for them? That's kind of what the Ollie Rules is going to be. It's going to okay. be like a memorial to this great character named Ollie from Game of Thrones. Uh-huh, Okay. But what is amazing is the Fuckoli subreddit, uh, like, so Reddit has default Reddit subreddits that appear on the front page. And uh, there is a subreddit called uh, all, like reddit.com slash r slash all. That's all the subreddits. So it's every subreddit. And so it's kind of more meritocratic, like uh, any subreddit can appear at the top of all if they get enough votes. And uh, so for a short time last night, Fuck Ollie appeared at the top of the reddit.com slash r slash all subreddit. So it was one of the most popular subreddits in terms of the number of votes that were given to some of these articles, uh, quote-unquote articles, posts online. And this caused a problem, Jana, because uh, these Fuck Ollie people were posting spoilers in the the headline of the post, and they were getting voted up to the top of the subreddit what? all. Um, what do you mean? What, what, is, what is the shock? Oh, you mean spoilers that he's dead? Yeah, spoilers that Ollie's oh, dead. Oh, okay. Which I is a, future Ollie spoilers. Which is, I, I think like, we all agree Ollie dying is a massive Game of Thrones spoiler that <laughs> a lot of people did not see coming and are shocked by. Um, and as of when we started recording this podcast, on the front page of Reddit.com, like the, the actual front page of Reddit.com, there is a uh, scumbag Steve post about people voting up uh, Game of Thrones spoilers to the, to the front page. Uh, which I think is a direct reaction to the fuck Ollie uh, subreddit being dicks, spoiling Game of Thrones, and not liking Ollie. So I'm just going to say to all the fuck Ollie people out there, you reap what you sow. And that is all. Um, do you feel better? I, I feel a lot better now. Okay, good. Thank you, John. <laughs> It was a big moment for you last night. I know a lot of our listeners are thinking of you. They uh, were. In that they moment, were. So. Got a lot of tweets uh, in support of Ollie. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. And yeah, we got to start that uh, Ollie hair watch right now. I mean, ca- my first reaction was, can't Malisandre just bring Ollie back? You know? So. Uh, he's definitely deserving, I think. I agree. Overall, sure. overall thoughts on the episode, Jenna? Um, Kid Harrington cut his hair. <laughs> 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 but he did not cut it when he said he cut it. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. Um, um, I liked this episode a lot. Yeah, I was I a really fan. Did. I was a fan. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that uh, a lot of this stuff in this episode moved uh, a lot of plot lines along in an interesting way. Double sword fight, pretty spectacular, worth the price of admission alone. Uh, Ramsey and Rickon and Asha, that seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. And I can't wait to see a Cersei slash Tommen slash High Sparrow clash, which I think this uh, season is setting up pretty well. 
So, and I like the Arya stuff. Um, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of great stuff to like in this episode. Looking forward to next week and finding out what's in that tower. So, uh, yeah. I think, I think it's really cute that you think you'll find out what's in that tower next week. <laughs> <laughs> when some people have been waiting 20 years. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I've been waiting, like, you know, at this point, 24 hours. So that's long enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> Completely. John Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And uh, you can find me at DaveChen.me. Thanks to all the people who tuned in live to this episode. Over 100 people are, are listening to us right now. And uh, we post on our Twitter accounts uh, when we're broadcasting live. We also post about it on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Kings. if you want to tune in live and hear us talk about the episode. Uh, so thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>